Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the first 13 verses. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though they were maybe called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge? Some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow bring a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed." But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. More than 20 years ago, I got an anonymous letter. It had to have come from a woman because it was about a woman in the preschool and they were all women. And it apparently she was sharing that this friend was having an affair. And that it would, this knowledge would somehow provide me opportunity to be in counseling with her. Well, it's not every day those things come across your desk, but it was wrong in all kinds of ways. Anonymous, tattling, and thinking that sabotage counseling was going to work. 
I pondered on what to do for a while and I folded the letter up, put it back in its envelope, walked down to this preschool and asked to speak to the said teacher. And I handed her the letter and I said, unfortunately, this is about you. And I want you to know it's none of my business until you make it my business if you choose to want me to be a part of your help. But you choose when that happens. And whoever wrote this is not much of a friend. But I'm there for you if I can be. What a spot. What a complicated situation. No part of that was going to be easily resolved. All I could hope for is that this woman would know that I would be there for in the most non-judgmental, caring, and healing way that I could. And the only way to help or to really help in this situation was to somehow find a way to establish a safe relationship. Paul knows sticky. Paul knows conflict. Paul knows complicated. After all, he's living in Corinth. In this passage, Paul is addressing the believers of of Corinth who live in a setting that is filled with every possible belief, lifestyle, and shenanigan that could be found, Christian or not. The problem in our scripture this morning is that animal sacrifice was still very common. And there were pagan rituals in which animals would be sacrificed, and when the leftover meat was available, they would take it to the marketplace and sell it there. Paul basically has two responses. One is, there's no other God but God. Zeus? No Zeus. So just because somebody waves a hamburger over an idol doesn't make it Zeus. It's just meat. Sometimes meat is just meat. So he says, eat it. And enjoy yourselves. Now, this doesn't resolve much because the Christian community at the time doesn't really agree about that. You see, his theological stance on this food stuff is not widespread. Lots of faithful people disagree with him. In fact, at the Council of Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 15, James releases the community of faith from being necessary to have a circumcision in order to be faithful. Gentiles, you're welcome. You don't have to do that. But he insists that they not eat that meat sacrificed to idols. 
In Revelation chapter 2, the author condemns the church at Pergamum and Thyatira for, among other things, eating this kind of meat. So in the New Testament, people are not of one mind about all of these complicated issues, which is good news for us because the church couldn't agree even then. But Paul isn't done here. There's kind of a second part to his understanding of what's going on. He argues and may argue that the meat is just fine, but he's worried about the emotional and spiritual health of the community of the faithful. Some of those Pagans that used to worship these idols are now becoming a part of the Christian community. They grew up sacrificing to idols and they felt it was a part of their worship and idolatry. For them to go back and eat that meat now may put them in a dilemma where they feel like they're backsliding or somehow being not quite true to their new faith. They may want a clean break from their past and watching others seemingly participate in this system of sacrificial meat sales, sales sends off bells and whistles for them. It may not be wrong in Paul's view, but Paul says the meat may not technically be a problem, but if it hurts someone, if it hurts these folks and their newness of faith, if it damages their spiritual health or other members of the body of Christ, then he's willing to forego that meat for his brothers and sisters. It raises all kinds of questions for the community of faith. What is the appropriate response within the church to the surrounding culture? What is it we're supposed to do or think about the difference between Israel and Palestine? It's so complicated, I don't even understand it, let alone know what to do about it. There's immigration and DACA and the wall. What's the right answer there? Poverty and global warming. You name it, we could come up with a laundry list of things over which our country disagrees. And even in our faith, we'd find a hard place to agree. The context inevitably raises a difficult question. Do we as Christians withdraw from our community and from our world, or do we engage in the community of diversity with a vibrant and robust health? Well, there's good news there too. Paul sits on the fence for both sides. 
Jesus approached the world from the perspective of epiphany, from light and understanding. And for him, wherever God was and wherever he was, was the same. God loves us, nurturing us, drawing us into God's life of love and joy. Paul witnessed Jesus crossing all kinds of boundaries and joyfully engaging in the world around him. But when Paul deals with the community, he always tries to establish behavior that takes into account both the fact that Christian believers live in the world, but also that we are somehow separate from it too. Paul wants Corinthian friends and us to know that being certain of what we believe is right or wrong, appropriate or inappropriate, is not enough to solve the problems that we face, even if we believe that our position is the correct one. For Paul, love is greater than knowledge. Paul points to that when we hurt others. He says we hurt Christ himself because we cause pain in the body, the life of the church. To hurt those for whom Christ died is to hurt Christ again. Above all else, he says we're called to show reconciling love in the church and that has to bear directly on what we do and how we do it. So what does it say to the church today? Basically, Paul says that freedom, freedom is slavery to Christ. And as Christ, we become responsible for each other. It's central to what it means to be in Christ. For that reason, any conflict, in any conflict, relations are an important element in decision-making and behavior as are the facts of the case. Decisions and behaviors are as important as the facts in the case. Paul comes down very hard on those who justify their behavior on the basis of theological arguments, even if he agrees with the argument. He himself, if necessary, would be a vegetarian for the rest of his life if it meant that he would no longer harm any of those who are weak of faith. Bishop Ken Goodson became a bishop when I was just a kid. He came out of the Western North Carolina Conference but served in Alabama and in Virginia. Had a tremendous ability to connect the scriptures to the hearts of others and he was reported as having been in a conversation with a gentleman after a radio broadcast that he'd done. Apparently within the radio broadcast he mentioned hypocrites. This guy comes up to him and says, don't you know that there are hypocrites in your church? 
To which Bishop Goodson feigned surprise and said, I thought they were all Baptists. <laughs> well, he persisted and, and he, he went on to name 12 people, of which some of them were very good friends of Bishop Goodson. And he says, well, I'll do you one better than that. And he named 12 more. And the guy says, well, what are you going to do about it? And he says, well, I'm going to throw them out of the church. To which he then said, ah, oh, you haven't got the guts to do that. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to throw them out of the church just as soon as the hospital stops admitting patients. Oh, my goodness, my friends. What we do is realize that none of us is perfect. All of us are sinners for whom Christ died. And the church and its relationship to others is how we build community, understanding, and a way forward. You see, the knowledge we have, what we think or we believe, doesn't let either side off the hook. While Paul may feel very comfortable in his understanding of the scriptures, no worries, eat that meat if you want, it isn't and can't be the end to the argument. Paul doesn't establish his understanding as the ultimate criteria for how the community behaves. He never conceives of the Christian as an independent individual who can make decisions that only involve him or herself. Quite the contrary for Paul, the Christians are first and foremost involved in community. We're enmeshed in a network of relationships that connect us. And it's that interconnectedness that is precisely the ultimate criteria. How one's behavior will influence the behavior of others is paramount, and the good of the community comes before anything else. I worked with a person by the name of Isabel Toth. She was a wise person in so many, she is a wise person in so many ways, and she used to say all the time when we were dealing with angry neighbor meetings at community properties, she'd say, it isn't what you say, it's how you say it. It isn't what you do, it's how you do it. In other words, it's the spirit of our intent that translates and has the power to heal in the midst of disagreement. I couldn't help but think about Mother Teresa. She was once looking after a group of leopards and she was caring for them and washing their wounds and she wanted them to know what a blessing they were and what a gift they were to the rest of the community. They'd never heard such a thing. They saw themselves as a burden, as a pariah, as something that was kicked from the community. And so one guy says, would you say that again? It did me some good. It 
didn't change his leprosy. It didn't change the challenge, but it began to heal his heart. You see, love is the ultimate criteria. Everyone is important, so everyone must be considered. In this community, it's the opinion of the ones less certain in their faith that Paul wants us to take into account. This is indeed how love should be understood within Christian community. Love in this context, of course, is not about romance. It's not sweet, fuzzy, and affectionate. This kind of love, when it comes into the community, is an active translation of God's presence into our actions. Did you hear that? Love, when it comes into the community, is an active translation of God's presence into our actions. It's so much more than about feeling good toward others. For Paul, love of the community doesn't mean that we have to like what's going on, necessarily even the people engaged. Or that we agree with what's decided or how we understand the world. Love is underlying and underpinning the community of faith that says all things might be permitted, but not all things are beneficial. And we have to look within ourselves. The criteria to determine what's beneficial must always care for the other. Only love understood as deep concern for the other members of the community is going to be useful in terms of healing and finding a way. If you've not watched Babette's Feast, I don't know how old the film is, but you might want to try it sometime. It has a different way of thinking about who's weaker and stronger within the body of Christ. In the film, there's a a little community of Christian believers on a remote Danish island. They've fallen into some hard times and they're bickering and even beginning to come apart as a flock. At the head of the community are two sisters, two older sisters. Their father had begun the community of faith. Early in the film, they take in a bedraggled French woman who's fled violence in Paris, the same violence that killed both her husband and her child. We find out that Babette has been a gourmet chef in the best hotels in all of France, all across Europe even, and now she's come to exist on this little island as the chief cook and bottle washer of these two tight-lipped, tight-drawn, tight-strung sisters. She's forced to live kind of an aesthetic life in which she cooks this pitiful fare. It's mostly porridge and plain things. 
The fancy stuff doesn't go in that community. Some years later, Babette wins the lottery in France and she finds the resources to return home and the days of violence are over. And so she decides as a way of saying thank you to this little community, as, as kind of difficult as it's been, she wants to say thanks for the way they took her in and cared for her, so she's going to throw them a feast. They don't know about that feast stuff. Kind of go against who they are, and so they get together as a community and decide, well, it's Babette. We love her, and we'll let her make this feast but we're going to behave like people with no taste buds and never enjoy a bite. It begins to become even more devilish as the groceries start coming in. There's a live turtle and quail and wild mushrooms. It's beginning to look a little devilish to them. And when they sit down to the meal and it's bounty, they begin to eat and with no small amount of alcohol involved, this little community begins to relax and to care for each other again and to care for Babette. And they begin to heal as this little community. And then they find out that Babette has spent almost entirely everything that she won to make that meal and to bless them. The community is restored. Make no mistake, my friends. Christians don't all believe the same things. But we all who hold in Christ hold Christ in the highest regard and faithful participation in his body can mean disagreement and yet we can still build the body of Christ. What makes an epiphany? It is the example of those who love God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength and accept the love of each other, mind and heart interpreting what's deemed as right or wrong. Perhaps most importantly, I think we find that even when we have the correct answers, it won't always be enough to heal us. Being the body of Christ is so much more important than being right. Sometimes for the sake of the body of Christ, it's better to choose the salad. Hold off on the hamburger. At least decide for a while that whatever it takes to love you and me together is worth it in the body of our Lord. Let's pray. So much would divide us, O oh God. And yet everything in your heart would build us up, heal us, and set us on new paths of action to transform the world. Help us, we pray, to open our hearts and our minds 
so that together with all the diversity and love that we have for each other, we look like the body that you are. Amen. Would you rise and join in our closing hymn?